HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome author Alex Prudhomme and pastry chef Bill Yasses. In this episode, we'll talk to Alex and Bill about cooking at the White House, Alex's new book, dinner with the president, and we'll get another double Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Did you know that Julia brought viewers behind the scenes at the White House? Yep, Julia twice filmed specials about presidential food featuring Swiss-born White House chef Henry Haller, who served more administrations than any other. She introduced us to the White House kitchen, first in 1967 during Lyndon Johnson's presidency, and returned in 1976 for an American bicentennial celebration where, ironically, the guests of honor were Queen Elizabeth II and her husband, Prince Philip, hosted by President Gerald Ford and his wife, Betty. The meal featured lobster, roast saddle of veal, rice croquettes, broccoli with sauce mornay, and vanilla custard with peaches and raspberries for dessert. Julia's access to the food and the party ended up being restricted, and a storm wreaked havoc on filming. But in the end, as Alex Prudhomme writes in his book, The French Chef in America, Julia said, 
I feel extremely lucky to have had a part in something that is a real event. Ruthie Lockwood, Julia's producer from The French Chef, and I just felt that we were two lucky girls to join in a dinner for the Queen of England at the White House. Two people who understand these kind of real events are Alex Prudhomme and Chef Bill Yosis. Alex is a veteran journalist and author, perhaps best known for co-writing his great-aunt Julia Child's acclaimed memoir, My Life in France, which became a number one New York Times bestseller and inspired half of Nora Ephron's movie, Julia and Julia. He's written three other books about Julia, The French Chef in America, among them, children's book Born Hungry, and co-authored France is a Feast. He's also written two books about water and many others. His latest book is Dinner with the President, Food, Politics, and a History of Breaking Bread at the White House. It presents a comprehensive tour of the eating habits and food politics of 26 presidents from George Washington to Joe Biden. And I should, for full disclosure, also say that Alex is uh, one of the trustees of the Julia Child Foundation. Joining Alex today is Bill Yosis, White House executive pastry chef who served both the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations after many years at top New York City restaurants, including Tavern on the Green. He's originally from Toledo, Ohio, and holds a master's in French literature from Rutgers. He discovered his love of pastry after a stage in a Michelin three-star restaurant in France. Bill worked closely with First Lady Michelle Obama's Let's Move initiative and was responsible for managing the First Lady's South Lawn Garden. Alex and Bill join us today to take us behind the scenes of what it's like to cook for American presidents and tell us all about how state dinners can change the course of history. Welcome to the podcast, Alex and Bill. Thank you. Thanks, Todd. So, Alex, let's start with you. What? How did you get so interested in presidential food and wanting to write a book about it? It was a three-part uh, introduction. Uh, first of all, as you mentioned, Julia was my great aunt, um, but it wasn't only Julia, but my grandmother, my mother, my uncles were all very good cooks. So I grew up in this foodie family, and we liked to sit around the dinner table talking about politics and history. So that was the background. When I was working on The French Chef in America, which was the follow-up to Julia's memoir, uh, it was really a book about how uh, Julia became America's first true celebrity TV chef. I discovered that she spent uh, more time at the White House than I had uh, realized. And as you mentioned, she did a TV special in 1967 um, that took the viewers behind the scenes at a state dinner. It was the first time that cameras were allowed into the White House kitchen. Um, and it was a real breakthrough. Um, and in 1976, she did it again when Gerald Ford hosted Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip at the Bicentennial. And she and her husband, Paul, had been diplomats, so they understood the value of state dinners, not only uh, gastronomically, but also politically, diplomatically. And they wanted to show a side of the White House, the People's House, that the people had never seen. And this really intrigued me. And I began to think about state dinners as, as something special that I didn't really know that much about. And then in 2016, I was invited to the White House to give a talk on fresh water to mid-level staff. And um, a friend in the Obama administration invited me to have lunch at the Navy Mess, which is the cafeteria on the ground floor of the White House 
next to the Situation Room. It's probably the most unusual cafeteria in the world. Um, and uh, afterwards, we did a quick tour of the White House. Uh, this was in August of 2016. The Obamas were off at Martha's Vineyard on vacation. The White House was basically shut down. And so we kind of had the place to ourselves. And we cruised all over there. And we went into the Oval Office. And I looked at the state dining room and peeked into the kitchen, which was still working away, and saw them at work. And it's a, as Bill can attest, it's a small space, only 22 feet wide by 27 and a half feet long. And they produce a remarkable uh, array of foods from that little kitchen. And then, you know, seeing those rooms that I'd read about and the portraits and the busts of the presidents and first ladies, and it really made history come alive for me. And they became more like actual human beings rather than these godlike figures. And, and I could almost sense them. And it, that, that experience just hit me in an emotional way that was really unexpected. And so I, I didn't realize it at the moment, but it all kind of came to the back, back together to, in, the, in my mind at that point. Um, and I started to think of ways that I could, as a journalist, recreate Julia's visits to a state dinner. But I was busy with other projects, and it took me a couple of years. And finally, in 2018, I began on what is now Dinner with the President. Um, and uh, it was slowed by COVID, but uh, it's just come out. And, um, uh, and in, in retrospect, the extra time I had was kind of an advantage because it allowed me to tweak some things and, and allow the political climate to, to calm down. So here we are. Well, I love that that also it comes from that same visceral experience that you write about. And, and may I say in a very lovely fashion, the book is a, a pleasure to read and very enjoyable and that you really bring it to life so well through these personalities, both the, the personalities of the presidents and first ladies and the guests and particularly the chefs as well, um, that it, you, you feel that sense of being there in those moments. So I, that's great to hear. And, and speaking of, let's ask Bill, how, how did you end up as a chef at the White House? Uh, well, it's a, um, a little bit of a mystery to me, um, <laughs> oddly enough. <laughs> You're still wondering uh, about it after. I'm still wondering. So, yeah, I got the call one day. Um, ah, would you like to interview for <clears throat> this job? And it was from a wonderful lady who I came to know and uh, love, uh, uh, Lee Berman, who was uh, Mrs. Bush's social secretary. She's an amazing uh, individual. And um, and so uh, back and forth a little bit. And then uh, so I said, sure, I'd love to try it out. And uh, so it was kind of like one of these uh, little competitions. There were some other people um who were being interviewed, although I don't know who they were. They don't tell you that. And they, they're they not the same day. You don't have to like slug it out on the state dining room floor. It's uh, You go in a very, um, very nice uh, setup and you, you propose a menu and then you execute it. And uh, then there's an interview portion, which is um, quite an alarming experience because it's directly with the president and first lady. Yeah. So you're not just auditioning for their handlers or staff. Like part of it is they, you feed them and they taste your food. And yes, yes. And uh, then they, um, they talked to you afterwards. So I walked into the room and there was uh, 
Condoleezza Rice, uh, Stephen Hadley, who was National Security uh, Director, um, Mrs. Bush and President Bush. Uh, pretty overwhelming scene, um, but it was, um, they were lovely and, and very nice and uh, I got the job. I think that speaks to what Alex writes about, the importance of food. Just the fact that you said that, you know, Condoleezza Rice was there uh, as well. Like the nation's business stopped to decide whether what you were <laughs> serving for dessert was good enough. I, I right? hope it didn't stop. I hope it was a mere pause. Well, you had some really important people in that room, so That's, nothing was going to get decided until they were this done. This is what's doing. amazing. You know, it's amazing to me that um, – because if at the time um, they were planning on uh, resupplying Iraq with uh, an additional uh, additional I don't know battalion of soldiers, so it was a very sensitive time and obviously a very emotional and um, nerve wracking time for them high high pressure, but um, I'm often reminded of. Um, of the saying that, uh, you know, in the most uh, stressful times, that's when it's most important to stay calm. And uh, so I guess they are an example of that. Well, and to be well-fed to an extent, do you remember what it was that you served them? Yes, it was a sort of, I would call it a variation on a peach cobbler. It was sort of a peach en croute. Um, and uh, <clears throat> the idea was that you would be serving something that might be a sample of what could appear at a state dinner. So there's also an elaborate uh, pulled sugar branch of peach flowers, which was uh, a part of the presentation. And you're leaving out, uh, but Bill is being very modest, but he's leaving out his his secret weapon, which was his double chocolate cookies, and uh, which I believe uh, appealed to the Bush twins. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and also I had asked for um, sort of... Um, a little cheekily, um, all organic uh, ingredients, which um, which they provided, and that was became a topic of of discussion. And uh, uh, the girls, in particular, were appreciative of that. Well, and I think Alex writes about that in the book that I was, um, I don't know, somewhat surprised to learn, I, I, and not maybe from bias, but just because it wasn't really publicized that despite the Obamas getting a lot of credit for being foodies and Michelle's proactive things that. Uh, Mrs. Bush did prefer organic food and did pay attention to what was consumed and where it was from. Yeah, yeah, not to the extent that, <clears throat> I mean, Mrs. Obama launched the whole South Lawn Garden, which was huge. But yes, they, they loved food um, and they were very concerned about nutrition in America. Um, you know, she had been a librarian and school teacher, so she was aware of um, of the of what's being served. Um, but yeah, they were, um, they were very involved with food choices and, um, certainly loved to dine and dine carefully. And was it summer if you were having Georgia peaches or were they yes, from Georgia? Yes, I it know. was, I believe it was, uh, it was smack dab in the middle of, uh, August. Mm. However, <laughs> they were, they were California peaches. They were, um, frog hollow. That, that was my kind of ace in the hole. Uh, so did you source the food for this sort of yourself? No, or, or no, you're you, not allowed. You request, you sort of I send it. I requested that, yeah. I see. Um, yeah, that, Alex covers that really well, too, that and particularly in the modern era, how, how, well, even before that, I think, Alex, that how carefully, you know, you can't just bring food to the White House. 
Well, it used to be in the old days that people would send foods from all across the country, um, either out of tribute to the president and first lady, or because they were looking for political favors or they wanted some publicity. The most famous items were giant cheeses that people would send to people like <laughs> Thomas Jefferson or Andrew Jackson, that, um, or the famous presidential salmon that were sent uh, every spring from Maine um, until those salmon became endangered. Um, but uh, slowly the defenses of the White House tightened, and then certainly after 9-11, um, nothing is allowed to get through. And um, what I was quite curious about the, the sourcing of food, and my understanding is that um, they use a whole series of vendors, um, and the vendors are told that they are supplying the U.S. government, but they aren't told that they're supplying the White House per se. And it kind of all goes to a big warehouse. And then the, where, the, the White House can requisition certain items from that, from that pool of food. So it's virtually impossible to poison the president these days. Thank goodness. So I, I wanted to touch on, on this because you mentioned it in sort of the Julia context, but I, I was curious more about it in, in the broader context, because I, I think it's a, a point that you make so well in the book that cannot be made enough of this connection between food and it, a role that it actually plays in diplomacy. You know, I think you quote Anthony Bourdain famously said, all food is political. And there's a lot of people who like to really say, oh, don't politicize food. But it in my mind, it very much is. There isn't anything about food and eating that isn't political, but then there's also the part about it being such a universal uniter. And I was curious if you could give a, a sort of example, because there's a lot in the book, but that really stands out for you that sits with you long-term about how food played a critical role in diplomacy. Sure. Uh, just to correct you slightly, the, the Bourdain quote was even more pointed than that. He said, nothing is more political than food nothing. Um, and he's right. When you look at it closely, uh, food is uh, highly uh, political because it touches on almost every aspect of our economy. Um, so yes, the book is full of examples. I mean, in 1874, U.S. Grant held the first state dinner for King Kalakaua of Hawaii. And the, the background to that was a, a sugar deal, but also it opened up Pearl Harbor to U.S. Navy uh, in 1972, Richard Nixon famously went to China and held his so-called chopstick diplomacy. Uh, 1978, Jimmy Carter brought Anwar Sadat of Egypt and Menachem Begin of Israel to Camp David, and they, they weren't getting along, but finally um, the Carters were able to use food to help break the ice, and the result was the Camp David Accords, uh, which brought peace, which is still standing kind of remarkably. But I think one of my favorite stories uh, took place uh, right before the Second World War in 1939 when Franklin D. Roosevelt wanted to enter uh, the war against the Nazis, but the U.S. was in a kind of an isolationist funk at that point and uh, didn't want to. And he knew that he had to win over the American public somehow. Um, and he learned that King George and Queen Elizabeth um, uh, were coming to Canada. So he invited them to come down to his family estate, Hyde Park, which is on the Hudson River, just north of New York City, uh, for a simple picnic, he called it. Um, and he uh, very intentionally planned this out, and he kind of shocked the world by 
serving the Windsors hot dogs, uh, something they'd never eaten before, um, and beer. And uh, like normal people, they weren't these kind of pretentious royals with crowns on their head, you know, swilling claret and, and eating roast beef. They were eating hot dogs and drinking beer and, and they really enjoyed it. And, and when the king ordered a second hot dog, and the New York Times was completely gobsmacked and they, they wrote a headline saying something like, you know, King eats hot dogs and has another and, and drinks beer as if it was kind of, you know, <laughs> completely unimaginable. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it worked like a charm. It, um, it, it, it actually uh, softened their, um, their personas in the American public's mind. And then behind the scenes, um, he and King George uh, worked out a deal where he basically promised uh, that he would defend British convoys and sink German U-boats that were trying to attack them and sort of wait for the consequences. And that was a, a huge deal because it was reasserting the so-called special alliance with Great Britain, and it helped to shift American sentiment. And it didn't come a moment too soon because shortly after that, the Germans invaded Poland with the Blitzkrieg. Um, and a year later, the U.S. began to ship supplies across the Atlantic. And, and then uh, in 1941, we, after Pearl Harbor, we joined the war. And so that simple picnic, so-called, uh, later became known as the picnic that won the war. Well, and now I have to give a lot more respect to the humble hot dog, which I also <laughs> point out the That's irony true. of hot dogs in American culture being sourced from the part of the world that we were uh, at that point. Fighting. Yeah. Irony. Wow. No, that that's a, those are all great examples. I, I want to go back to Nixon for a second because you, you uh, to get to your great ex hot dog story, glossed over the fact that what I found really interesting, which I sort of knew was Nixon was not big on food or a big eater, but that it's not just that he used chopsticks in China, that he actually approached the role with gusto, right? And like practiced and was like- Yeah, I love that was, story. Yeah, he, uh, you have to set the scene, which is that Nixon for lunch every single day had a little dollop of cottage cheese. And sometimes he'd dress it up with a splash of ketchup or a pineapple ring. Uh, and, you know, this was the early 70s when diet food and health and the California cuisine was becoming a thing. But it's just odd that he ate that almost every single day for lunch. Um, and, and as you said, you know, he would rush through meals. He didn't like to spend a lot of time talking or thinking about food, um, although he did like California wine. But when it came to going to this exotic country on the other side of the world where they, you know, allegedly ate mysterious things like cat and, you know, snake and um, uh, foods that uh, Nixon would normally never get near. Um, he trained himself and he practiced for hours using chopsticks because this was the first state visit that was televised in America. And he understood the optics of that. And he rightly predicted that if he could look good using chopsticks, um, then Americans would trust him as a president. And he was under, he was in, in the middle of a reelection campaign. He wanted to prove that he was a, a global leader. Um, and this was a really big deal. And indeed, um, when those televised images came across of him using chopsticks and, 
and Barbara Walters saying, the president's using chopsticks. You know? <laughs> um, it, it made a huge impact. Um, and it was almost as important as the actual diplomacy going on behind the scenes because they really, Americans really felt like he was a, a leader. And, um, and the, the other thing was that uh, if you go to a Chinese bank at the banquet, they often use very powerful uh, liquor to make toasts with. It's called Mao Tai. And Nixon had a very weak head for alcohol. And Kissinger wrote, you know, under no circumstances allow him to drink the Mao Tai. But <laughs> there he was on television. He knew that everybody was watching him. And so he took very tiny sips of Mao Tai and, and, and luckily didn't embarrass himself or the United States. I think that, yeah, that whole image is, 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 is amazing. So, Bill, I wanted to ask you, is there a time or meal or moment that stands out for you where, where that really, you know, kind of firsthand you either felt or witnessed that, that relationship between the White House food and diplomatic moments of, of import? Yeah, yeah. Oddly enough, <clears throat> it uh, was for the China State Dinner um, as well. So, um and you're, I was fascinated by this part of the conversation. And we're, of course, we we sort of reject everything about the Nixon presidency due to his uh, illegal activity. But um, yeah, there was China. And I was reminded also recently when I was reading about this, the recent Biden uh, conference on food, that Nixon is really the person who expanded greatly the food stamp program. It was... Um, he, it was a very small program when he came in, but he expanded it five times and it led to like up to 15 million people were covered. So um, he did some good things. Um, but yeah, one of the uh, one of the biggest state dinners that we uh, participated in there, during the time that I was there was for China. Um, uh, it was uh, President Hu Jinato. And um, so... The, the Obamas were very conscious of food, as as we know, and we as chefs were invited to attend some of the preliminary meetings to get a sense of what the um, the overall state dinner's purpose was. There's always a stated purpose. Um, usually it involves trade, of course, or peace agreements or um or whatever is the current topic that the diplomats are talking about. So it was fascinating to be part of that and um, to sort of uh, trade was certainly an important issue. And so um, we were we were sort of brought into that conversation. But then uh, whatever notes we took about how we could um, sort of develop the ideas of of um, Chinese products coming to America or American products going to China was kind of undercut because uh, um, the premier said, uh, oh, I want all American food. Um, I don't know if he didn't trust us to uh, make Chinese food or he just really wanted to taste the best of American food. But um, I remember we wind up we wound up serving apple pie at, at that state dinner. <laughs> and did, did you get feedback from the Chinese delegation on the on the meal? No, I, I don't think I ever got. Well, no, I got feedback from some of the important state dinners. Um, my most famous claim to fame, that one we didn't, um, but my most my most successful one was I made a strudel for the state dinner of Germany, and uh, we were, Chris Comfort and myself were introduced uh, to the audience at the end of the meal, 
And I got a thumbs up from uh, Chancellor Merkel on my apple strudel. So that will, to my, uh, you know, to my dying day, be a point of pride and something I often crow about. <laughs> and deservedly so, yes, that is high praise. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break and we'll be back with more on Dining at the White House with Alec Prudhomme and Bill Yossis. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions, master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin Wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back. We're talking to author Alex Prudhomme and pastry chef Bill Yossis about cooking at the White House and Alex's new book, Dinner with the President. So, Alex, one thing, and you've done a great job of kind of giving us highlights of who you talked about and who you covered and why. I was also curious because... Uh, I know you made the decision that it would be a very long book if you wrote about every single administration, but so you didn't, you, you, you took selections, but I was curious, who did you leave out and why you left them out? Was it all just because they were boring eaters? No, I mean, one of the hardest parts about writing this book was deciding what to include and what not to, uh, because I, I quickly learned that virtually every president has a food story of some kind, uh, some are better than others. Um, and so my criteria was to tell the most compelling stories about the food of politics and the politics of food, um, and to use the best known presidents, um, because I really want to try to reach a wide audience and, and get this subject in, in the public eye. Uh, and that sadly left a lot of good stuff on the cutting room floor. Um, but so using that criteria, you know, there were people like, Andrew Jackson and his giant cheese, who I, I, I mentioned in passing, um, or the, the, you know, his drunken inauguration where people came in and trashed the White House, which, you know, it's kind of amusing, but it, it takes some time to explain. And um, he was followed by Martin Van Buren, who was a very different kind of person. He had sort of small dinners, very good food, but, but quite formal. Um, and that ended up kind of working against him politically, that he was accused of having a, a golden spoon in his mouth. And, you know, those are sort of amusing anecdotes, but I didn't feel like either of those two were particularly noteworthy presidents. Um, I mean, James Buchanan was our only bachelor president, which is sort of interesting, and he was kind of a foodie, but eh, um, they didn't make the cut. And But there are a few regrets that I have. Um, I have only one paragraph left from a, a long section I wrote about Warren G. Harding, who um, 
was uh, known for what he called the poker cabinet, where he would, this was during Prohibition, he would confiscate the public's alcohol, and then he and his buddies would play poker and drink the booze and smoke cigars in the White House. Um, and, oh, my God. That, you can't do uh, that eat, during cancel culture, can you? Yeah, and then and they would eat bratwurst, and it just sounded so horrible. And I, <laughs> But um, it, it was quite a scene. Anyway, I cut that way down. I kind of regret it. And, and I also I cut the whole um, scene I had about the Obama beer summit, which is kind of fascinating backstory to it and uh, lingered with me. So I'll, I hopefully will repurpose some of this material down the road. Yeah, the the outtakes are yeah, no, exactly. I was missing Rutherford B. Hayes and Grover Cleveland. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> don't we all? Maybe part two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bill, I I wanted to ask you as as a pastry chef for for two presidents and particularly two recent presidents, W. and, and President Obama. I was just curious, and we talked a little bit about a similarity of them both caring about the sourcing of ingredients. But I was curious, do they stand out in your mind as having really similar or very different preferences and tastes? Um, well, I guess the approach was different, but um, the actual taste. Um, so President Obama has famously been on record as saying he only likes pie. Um, and that's pretty much what we were uh, concentrated on during um, the eight years that he was president. Um, so and the rest of the family, too, sort of went along and I mean, they, you know, might have requested a cake here or there. Um, so mostly for the man himself, we made all kinds of different pies. Um, so would he have a pie as a birthday cake instead of a cake? Often, yes, yes. We would make like a buffet of pies for for his <laughs> birthday. Yeah, like twelve different pies. Oh okay. Which I kind of prefer pie to birthday cake, anyways. I I, I was very sympathetic to that. Um, yeah, I remember one. Uh, and particularly on Thanksgiving, oh my God, we just like, because they would have friends and family. There was uh, no, not really administration people invited. So um, friends and family and um, the whole like state floor would be turned into a more casual setting and they would like rent sofas and all this so people could just hang out. And, and um, the we, uh, but there again, we would make like 24 different kinds of pies. Uh, so yeah, so he was, um, you know, concentrated on those. But uh, I think President Bush never met a dessert he didn't like. He really loved desserts, um, always looked forward to it, always mentioned it or or came back in the kitchen and told us, you know, what he thought. Um, so he had a much more, uh, I guess, uh, wide uh, sort of palate as far as desserts go. Um, but it was, uh, it was a pleasure to serve him because he really dug into his desserts with gusto. <laughs> and, and do you remember, oh, I mean, would you try not to repeat things or was there something that like- We tried knew? not to. Uh, well, no, for an official event, we we didn't repeat. Um, that was sort of an unwritten rule that uh, every guest should feel that the event was um, really um, for them, uniquely for them. And so uh, every menu for every event at the White House is different. Um even if in some small way, to make those menus unique. Um, but for the family, I mean, there would sometimes be requests for like, oh, yeah, make that again. Um, like uh, rhubarb 
strawberry pie was popular. Um, banana cream pie was popular. Sometimes you would they would request particular things. Um, could, could you most, fool a President Obama and serve him banana cream pie and he wouldn't know that it was a cake or that didn't work? Um, he was a pretty sharp guy. As you <laughs> just kidding. I just noticed. was talking to someone the other day who did not realize banana cream pie <laughs> is not a pie. Um, well, um, oh, well, you may be thinking of Boston cream pie. Oh, Boston sorry. Cream Boston pie. cream pie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Boston right. cream pie is a cake and, and that would have been rejected. No, there was, we would, he would have uh, recognized the cakiness and, uh, <laughs> I might've gotten one of those like Laurel and Hardy cakes in the face if I tried to serve that. But he'd be um, the president of Obama to be happy with the banana green pie. Yeah, he would be happy with that. Sorry, yeah, thank you for catching that. <laughs> didn't 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 uh, he call you the crust master? Yes, um, <laughs> he was. Uh, although I, I never to my face that I remember, except for for my uh, a party that I attended that they sort of included me in at the end, and then he he admitted he sort of called me the crustmaster behind my back which is all, another very proud you know that can go on my tombstone as far as i'm concerned there are <laughs> there are many secretaries of state and of defense and uh of uh but there's only one crustmaster by presidential decree so i'm very proud of that <laughs> yeah. and did president well bush have a a favorite though that for personal that you you often yes made because yes it was he loved can you this. share this or are you under nda for these things uh no this is like this is pretty common knowledge uh, i there are not that many things that are classified a few but um no he loved this uh seven layer chocolate cake that was a famous cake from a club in houston that i don't even think he was a member of the club but he had been invited there and they have this famous seven layer chocolate cake that um, that he really loved. And so Susie Morrison and myself, Susie's the current pastry chef, we loved making that cake and um, and we would serve it for his birthday and other other like special events where it was just family involved. Is it one? See, that's, I think, how I like cake, because to me, cake, is, I actually not a pie person very much and but i don't also love cake because it's usually dry but is it that it's very thin layers of cake so you get a lot of a high cake defrosting ratio and then that's that, right that's right that's lane. probably why he liked it we um and we uh so i i can this could be a scoop because i've never admitted this before but i think i'm long enough uh, out of the white house that i can't be uh prosecuted but when uh, for the opening of the um bush library um, which of course that's like two to three years after President Bush left the um, left the White House. Uh, Susie and I made uh, one of those cakes that we knew he loved, and uh, I carried it to um, Dallas in my luggage, <laughs> and so we presented what? it to him <laughs> at the at the library, and uh, he was quite happy with that. I think, Bill, I love this story that in this um, moment where things feel so exhaustingly divided that you worked for two presidents from very different political backgrounds, although in hindsight closer together than we are now, and mm -hmm. that you could oh, move seamlessly. And, and it just I think the book also reminds, as Alex said at the beginning, of how much 
is exalted the presidency and the first lady and all of that art, they are still human beings with families who sit down to eat like everybody else. Uh, absolutely. Uh, it, it's, um, yeah, it's unfortunate how divided we have become. And, um, but President Bush and President Obama are, um, differ on almost those subjects, but uh, we, we see, I love seeing the scenes where, uh, Mrs. Obama and President Bush exchange glances and exchange like little candies and, and, uh, cough drops and things like that when they're together. There's obviously a real connection there and a real uh, friendship and appreciation, something uh, we need to develop more. I agree. The, the humanity and, and, and mutual respect, even amongst differences of opinion shown, That's is, right. I think, remarkable and admirable. And always quite interesting how, as Alex takes in the book, and I'll ask him about it in a second, is looking back, because um, I worked in Washington when uh, Clinton, in the first Clinton, I didn't work in the administration, but worked in D.C. during the first Clinton administration, and the feeling and view toward the Clintons by Democrats at the time was so different than how it ended up, and I think even how it felt with President Bush in the White House compared to then what we experienced with President Trump it, it, it all changes and evolves or like, you know, what happened with Jimmy Carter, both at the time and um, now today. Um, so, Alex, I wanted to ask you as sort of the definitive last word is is having now written what I think must be now the definitive book on presidential food. What do you, what do you feel that it, it taught you and teaches us about America and what is American food? A couple things. Um, first of all, there's always that question, what is American food? And I came after all this research to think of it as a, a truly global cuisine. And it began in the earliest days when you had Thomas Jefferson, who was a true epicure uh, with this kind of great vision of what he wanted. And his slave chef, James Hemings, who had been trained at some of Paris's best restaurants. Um, and uh, when they came back from uh, Jefferson being an ambassador in Paris, uh, he used, uh, James Hemings used French technique that he'd learned, uh, largely sort of British recipes, um, indigenous American ingredients like turkey and corn and venison, um, along with African herbs and spices from the, from the slave traditions. And of course, his own inspiration uh, to create what what became known as Virginia cooking, uh, and and today really informs what we think of as American cookery. Um, but then, when you sort of look at the the arc from George Washington uh, starving at Valley Forge, eating gruel and foraging for mushrooms, and you go up through the years through when we would eat things that. We no longer eat like squirrel stew or possum or turtle soup, which were considered sort of the height of, of sophistication back in the day. But but now we just think they're kind of weird or, or even gross. And, you know, uh, you, you see the, the evolution of American cookery, um, you know, the cottage cheese of Nixon. Then uh, you get up to, um, you know, people like the Kennedys and the Reagans uh, and FDR, who were, were, were gourmets and had kind of French inflected uh, menus. Um, 
And, um, you know, food sends a political message. Um, you know, when Ronald Reagan ate his jelly beans or George H.W. Bush had his pork rinds or Clinton and Trump had their McBurgers, it was in part a message to their voters, which was, you like this food, I like this food, so vote for me. And it's mm. a really primal message. Um, most of the time, we're not aware that we're being affected by that, but it's a very effective uh, political message. And it, and it goes you know, back to our primal brain and essentially says to us, we're from the same tribe. I like this guy. Um, and the public pays attention. So, you know, when Obama was eating healthy foods, uh, a lot of Americans started planting gardens and eating healthier. And then when Trump uh, started uh, tweeting about taco bowls, uh, a lot of Americans felt licensed to eat fast food. And, um, you know, and then you think about the the way that the that arc shows the modernization and industrialization of the nation, uh, you know, both uh, its progress, but also its drawbacks. Um, you know, we had these space age foods like Sanka and Pop-Tarts <laughs> and Tang. Uh, and now, you know, you have Biden who loves ice cream famously and also, you know, pasta. Uh, you look at the arc from Washington to Biden and it just tells us so much about the nation uh, and ultimately uh, about the state of the union and, and ourselves. Thank you for that. I think that's very well put. And, and yes, let the symbolism of what anyone eats and is publicized not be um, uh, underappreciated. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll get another double Julia moment. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org. Tickets are now available for the 2023 Taste of Santa Barbara, May 15 to 21. Check out our lineup featuring Santa Barbara County's top culinary talent at sbce.events. The lineup includes a special screening of classic Julia episodes in a conversation with chefs Susan Feniger, Antonio Lafazzo, and Nancy Silverton, a Cherry Bomb meetup, Maddie's Tavern in the San Inez Valley, and the Taste of Santa Barbara wines at El Presidio, as well as cooking classes, farm tours, vineyard tours, and special menus throughout the county. Follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for breaking news and updates. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Now, Alex, you're, you're one of our rare repeat guests, so you get to do a second official Julia Moment. Go for it. Well, going back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, one of the inspirations for this book was Julia at the White House. Uh, when she went in 1967, uh, the guest was Prime Minister Sato of Japan, very important ally. Um, this was the first time cameras had been allowed in the White House kitchen. Uh, Chef Henry Holler uh, produced this wonderful meal. Um, and Tony Bennett was the performer that night, and he kind of ripped off his jacket and 
uh, belted out his hits. And at the end of this somewhat tense negotiation, this dinner was kind of a great celebration of the alliance between the U.S. and Japan. You know, not that many years after the Second World War uh, and during the Vietnam War, which was a, it was a very tense period. And, and Julia notes in her voiceover that, you know, here they are, you know, these two world leaders at a horrible time in history, getting to know each other as real human beings, not just as kind of stand-ins for their nation. And it was a, it was a great moment. And then when she did it again uh, nine years later with Gerald Ford hosting uh, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip at the Bicentennial of 1976, you know, this was this really important event. Um, the Fords had uh, built a beautiful white tent over the Rose Garden. Um, again, Chef Holler was producing a delicious meal. Uh, everything was choreographed to the last second. Um, but right before the event was to start, a violent rainstorm swept off the Potomac and, and just soaked everybody and washed off the, uh, the knocked down the TV cameras. And <laughs> it was a, kind of a, a mini disaster. But they regrouped and the show went on. Um, Bob Hope's jokes were kind of lame and uh, when the Queen was dancing with Gerald Ford, the Marine band, band kind of unintentionally uh, was playing The Lady is a Tramp. Um, <laughs> and the camera work was bad. And so it was kind of a, uh, you know, a, a collection of, of many disasters. Um, and Julia was grumpy because she was in the back room and not able to taste Holler's food or to have any wine. And um, uh, so she was kind of grumpy. And then but things kind of lightened up because uh, the entertainer that night was the captain and Tennille warbling about muskrat love. And <laughs> Julia said, well, that's not very queenly. <laughs> so, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, as you mentioned, she and her, her producer, Ruthie Lockwood, sell, said they, they just felt very lucky to be in the presence of the queen at the White House. And so uh, the, my takeaway from this was that she was just you know, Julia was actually a, a real history nerd and, and was pa proudly patriotic and was mm -hmm. very inspired by these visits to the White House. And so she took it upon herself to promote White House food uh, and Chef Holler. Um, she wrote articles encouraging uh, future administrations to highlight regional cuisines. You know, when the Carters succeeded uh, the Fords, uh, she she recommended that they really highlight their Georgia cooking, which they did, and the Reagans, you know, with their California wine and and so on. And so she she encouraged Americans, American presidents, to treat food the way that the French do, um, that, as something to be celebrated and to to use it as a form of soft power diplomacy. Um, and she said, you know, we've really got to emphasize the good news about the good food at the White House. And, um, you know, that was just so Julia and it, and it, and it, and it helped to inspire me and, 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 and this book. The good news about the good food at the White House. I love that. All right, Bill, what's your Julia moment? Are you going to take us to the White House or, or somewhere else? Um, well, first I'll, I'll start in the White House. And I have to say, Alex, I was so appreciated, uh, when you talked about the inspiration for your book and having been in those rooms, um, I feel the same way. I feel like the building is more, it's, it's almost a living person uh, when you see all those portraits of past presidents and um, it's just very moving to be there. And I highly recommend to <clears throat> anyone listening that um, 
you arrange to uh, visit the White House, you can do so through your congressperson. And uh, it's just such an incredible site, very beautiful and um, inspiring, as you said. Um, so, um, yeah, my uh, and, and appreciate uh, Julia's comment as well of, of how important food is. So but I might take I'd like to take this conversation <clears throat> in another direction <clears throat> because um, Julia was known for her uh, intensive wit and her uh, very uh, sort of um, provocative way of talking. And uh, she would definitely uh, at times had no filter and something I think it's important to remember about people. Um, we seem to have a dearth of these like charismatic people now that, you know, we, we have, uh, we have to be so careful about what we say. And, um, certainly that's, there's good things attached to that. But, um, I met Julia Child at uh, David Boulay's restaurant, Boulay. She had come for dinner and she came into the kitchen to talk to all of us and had a wonderful moment with her at that time. But my stronger memory is when I mentioned it to a friend of mine who had gone to a culinary school in Boston, um, Julia asked her, what, what school did you go to? And she told her, and this friend of mine told me that Julia said to her, oh, no one good ever went to that school. <laughs> it made me roar with laughter um, because uh, we need more of that sort of uh, unfiltered conversation these days, I think. No, it, it is interesting, actually. And let me take that back to a presidential comment, maybe in a question for Alex, which we don't normally do at this point of the show. But I'm conscious of this the, this dilemma or dialectic in politics that, as Bill, you were saying, it things have become so scripted, but that actually what connects voters to elected officials is feeling that they're real. And there's this tension between needing to never go off script and always be on message. And what actually resonates with, with the public is genuineness and, and that you don't even have to agree with a candidate's views if you feel they're being authentic and genuine. And, and we're at this really tremendous point of tension between these two factors in, in politics, and you know, which I think speaks to the subject. I, Alex, do you want to have the last word on that? Well, you're absolutely right. I, I agree with both of you. And it is, it's one of the, the themes of this book, really. And, and, and you know, part of it for me is that food can be revealing, uh, sometimes unintentionally. So when George H.W. Bush uh, was eating pork rinds, it just didn't ring true. It, ran, it read hollow as opposed to his mentor, Ronald Reagan, eating jelly beans, which did read as true. And they're both designed as political messages to an extent, but Reagan's jelly beans just seemed more genuine, where Bush's you know, who was a Connecticut Yankee, but, you know, had reinvented himself as a Texas oil man. It just didn't work. It worked against him. And then when he couldn't figure out how to use a um, checkout register at the supermarket, that <laughs> kind of sealed the deal for him. And, you know, food, it, it, it's always there. It's always in front of us. Um, and we ignore it at our peril, especially if we're the president. Um, on the other hand, if you use it wisely, um, it can be very powerful. 
I, I'm I'm thinking of the uh, crudite platter as Doctor Oz's potential undoing in his race. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. On that note, thank you both for joining me today. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was very enjoyable. And thanks everyone for listening. For more from Alex, he's at alex.prudhomme on Instagram and at words on Twitter. You can find Bill on Instagram at Bill underscore Yosis. It's Y-O-S-S-E-S. The book is Dinner with the President, Food, Politics, and a History of Breaking Bread at the White House by Alex Prudhomme. It's out now from our friends at Knopf, also Julia's publisher. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. Video clips from The French Chef are arriving weekly on at Julia Child on Facebook. And please follow at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. I'm at T. Shulkin on Instagram. You can find Julia Child channel streaming The French Chef on Pluto TV, Plex, and Freevee, as well as on the PBS Living and PBS Documentary channels on Amazon. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song, New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.